This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, May has been quite an interesting month in terms of U.S. policy on Asia. We had the U.S.-ASEAN summit at the White House in Washington recently, and we've had President Joe Biden visit Seoul and Tokyo as well. But uh, beneath all these uh, high-profile meetings, Life does go on for ordinary people, and one issue of great concern in China and in the region and possibly globally is the way China is dealing with its COVID pandemic. Now, I am very glad to have with me Dr. Lurong Chen, Senior Economist at the Economic Research Institute for ASEAN and East Asia, based in Jakarta. Welcome to Asian Insider, Dr. Chen. Good to see you. My pleasure to join you. Thank you. And from uh, Beijing, uh, Straits Times, China Bureau Chief, my own colleague, Don Donway. Don, good to have you back. Thanks, Namal. Good to see you. So, Don, may I start with you? Could you give us an update on the situation in China in terms of the economic fallout of China's COVID policy, the lockdowns and restrictions and so forth, which have been carrying on for weeks and, in fact, months in some cases? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think we haven't even fully begun to tally up, you know, the economic cost of this COVID policy. Shanghai is only slowly emerging now from a citywide lockdown that started in early May, um, and it plans to end this lockdown by next month, but only if there are no rebound in infections. And since last Friday, you know, they've found cases outside of the quarantine areas and put a few more districts back into lockdown. So there's really no saying when the city will be fully open and when, you know, when businesses can resume and people can, can go back to work. Um, the economic numbers are not looking very good so far. Um, the April data across the board uh, have been the worst since uh, February and March 2020, um, which was when you know COVID first broke out in Wuhan and then spread to other provinces. And this is, you know, for retail sales and also for factory production, which which has been hit badly by the lockdowns, you know, which have disrupted supply chains. And you know, we've seen property sales and car sales plunged by nearly half. Um, and also the jobless rate has gone up uh, to about 6%, which is also the highest since um, February 2020. So it's going to be a challenge for China to meet its GDP target of around 5.5% this year. And economists have mostly revised their forecast down, you know, some to as low as 2%. So if China persists in its its COVID policy, you know, beyond May and into June or even longer, then the recovery is going to be even harder. Um, already the chambers of commerce, such as the EU and American chambers, you know, they've said that in uh, recent surveys of their members that, um, uh, you know, an increasing number of these foreign companies in China are considering relocating you know, their current or their planned investments out of China to other markets. Um, and uh, you might you might have seen there was a recent report by the Wall Street Journal uh, saying that Apple is looking at shifting some of its production to other countries, um, and they're looking at possibly Vietnam and India 
And this is, of course, also driven by the um, China's COVID policy. Is there any evidence of a bit of a rethink starting in China? Um, no. In fact, I think they have doubled down on this policy. Um, and, um, you know, that has been, um, you know, put forth in their, through propaganda and the state media, you know, basically saying why they need to stick to this policy. Because if they don't, you know, it's going to a country as big as China, you know, they will have um, a significant number of deaths. And, you know, um, that would be uh, too costly for them. So, you know, they have said time and again that's, that, yes, you know, this is, um, we, we are facing challenging times economically, but then this is only temporary and, and we will get through this. Okay. Dr. Chen, Dawn referred to supply chains. Now, obviously, uh, you know, this must be a concern in the region. Can you, can you tell us, can you tell me a little bit about that? Could you elaborate a bit on the ramifications of what's going on in China to slow down in China on the back of this, of this issue for supply chains regionally? Sure. Um, thank you. Yes. Um, from an economic point of view, I think this uh, COVID pandemic and the consequent uh, lockdown measures uh, trigger a crisis we call a supply chain crisis. Um, so there's uh, economic shocks from the, both the demand side and the supply side. And one reason is that we know that uh, globalization and global value chain already integrate global market to, to quite a high uh, level. And China, uh, we also always call it uh, the world factory of manufacturing products. It's one of the world largest export of consumer products, especially. So when China shut down his border to, to prevent the virus outspread to the rest of the world. The first thought we can see is that the, the export from China sharply decreased. And then this will have significant effect on the world total supply. So you see that there's no, no good surprise from, from China anymore. And this is a, a surprise I saw. But on the other hand, we also know that uh, behind made in China is a, a whole global value chain there. China needs input from other countries in terms of uh, intermediate products, uh, raw materials, parts and components, and, uh, and, and a big variety of different kind of services activities. So when China shut down, the, the direct effects that the upper stream supplier to made in China see that the demand vanished. So there's no customer or the, the order got cancelled or postponed. So this trigger, we call it demand side stock. So with this and via this value chain connected to every country together, we see that the measurement in China actually spread out to the whole world and everyone can feel uh, the consequence of the policy. So, um, uh, so this is what we can observe here. And if we want to go deeper, this uh, COVID pandemic effect is actually, it changed um, the trade costs. Before the COVID, we are enjoying from the low uh, transportation costs, low uh, communication costs. But during the COVID, we've always mentioned, what we see is that the, the increased price, uh, increased cost of transportation, and so and also the increasing price of communication. And people always say that digital solution can provide a, a kind of backup or alternative to deal with the situation. But here, we need to be more uh, conservative or more re realistic. Yes, 
um, digital solution to some extent help to deal with the in, uh, increasing cost in communication because we can use um, uh, smartphone, use internet to talk to each other, communicate each other. This will facilitate the ongoing of global value chain. But on the other hand, we see the transportation part. What digital technology can do today is still quite limited. We still need ocean transportation. We still need uh, air freight to, to, to send cargo from one place to the other place. So with this, we, 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 we can see that this uh, uh, COVID pandemic actually affect everyone via uh, the links to the global value chain. Staying with you for a moment there. Um, yeah, so essentially there's a lot of, there, there is growing fear of a global recession. There's inflation is very high across a lot of, a lot of the globe, especially in the West, especially where I sit in DC. It's a huge domestic problem, in fact. So there's a lot of fear of global, of a global recession. And this is in part due to the war in Ukraine, of course. And I would like to get to the issue of food security later, but staying with the recession first. I mean, if, if the situation in China drags down regional economies as well, does it become one more factor? feeding into the prospect of high inflation followed by a recession? Yes, I think so. I do think so. Uh, China is one factor, but biggest factor is that uh, many countries are uh, kind of a rescue package uh, during the COVID pandemic. You have this fiscal expansion to deal with the most uh, kind of an urgent situation. And we can see that uh, many countries are running this red book to deal with COVID. So this expectation and and the and recession is something within people's expectation. The point is that uh, how big it will be and how we can deal with that. So uh, related to what I said, one, uh, one way we should think is that we know that inflation, high inflation and possible recession is chasing behind us. So what we think is how we can run faster. So uh, from the regional perspective, we were seeing that what's the, what could be the new engine to drive the region to develop faster and so the global economy. And this is why uh, many people here were seeing that to accelerate digitalization could be a way to create new industry, create new demands, new surprise, and create new job opportunities. And this is uh, uh, something fundamental to economic growth. And at this circumstance, it could also be part of our solution to deal with the positive recession and also this uh, inflation uh, pressures on the global economy. I see. Uh, Dawn, uh, coming to the issue of food security, this is, uh, the UN has warned that the, the Ukraine war is a frightening new uh, factor in terms of global food security. Ukraine is a breadbasket of part of the globe, and of course, certainly Europe. And aside from that, of course, there's high energy prices, which is a different matter altogether. But is there concern in China about food security in China, um, given all these factors at play here, the disruption within and without. Yeah, for sure. I mean, China, you know, it has a daunting task of feeding 1.4 billion people. So food security is a major priority for the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and with climate change, with all these geopolitical tensions that are happening and also global uncertainties, there has been a huge push uh, for China to be self-sufficient and 
President Xi Jinping has, in fact, spoken about this many times in the past year or so. And he he famously said, um, you know, the rice bowls of the Chinese people must be filled with Chinese grain. Um, China is the world's largest producer of wheat, but it also relies on um, imports of soybean and oil seeds um, to meet its needs. And these are the crops that Mr. Xi has um, ordered officials to boost production for. Um, and the Ukraine war has given this mission, um, you know, urgency because of rising food prices and shortages. But China appears to be coping uh, okay for now. I mean, the fallout from the war hasn't impacted food prices here too much. It has, you know, large reserves, especially large grain reserve, for instance. But it does need to, you know, quickly improve um, agricultural technology and innovation um, in order to be able to ramp up its productivity. And it has also been diversifying its import sources. Um, for instance, it's now importing corn from Myanmar to reduce its reliance on Ukraine. And it is um, also pushing Chinese companies to produce um, fertilizers, which it um, imports from from Russia. Um, and Chinese experts have come up with suggestions um, to, to tell the Chinese government that you do need to also um, look out for the farmers and improve incentives for farmers um, by providing subsidies to them, you know, to plant corn and soybean, for instance, and also to reduce food waste um, along the whole chain, you know, from production to transportation, uh, storage um, to consumption. Interesting. Dr. Chen, um, could you could you tell me something about the regional picture in terms of food security? Is there is there a, a new consciousness of the food security issue in the back of the war in Ukraine and all these disruptions? Should we be worried? Well, uh, sure. And I think this food security issue is uh, very important to, to the region as well, given the region has a very big population as well. Um, um, and when we when we talk about food security, we think about whether the whether there are enough food to, to, to feed people and also whether the, the price of food is affordable um, to people. So for the region is thinking that there's still large um, poverty population here, this price of food is something the uh, region need to uh, really care about. But frankly speaking, I, I, don't, I don't think this US, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, the direct effect uh, on the region is, uh, is, is much because the, there's Quite limit, only limited bilateral relations between uh, most Asian countries to the to both countries. But the, the the more impact will come from the, the their in this uh, Russia Ukraine wars on the global commodity price and also as you mentioned the energy price because both market commodity market and uh, energy market they are highly integrated global markets. So the uh, the supply chain uh, the, the supply demand balance change can quickly trigger price change, price frustration, and then all the country will feel it. So for the region, I think some country, to some country, this is good news, if they depends on their, 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 their economic structure. To some country, this could be a warning sign. But to this point, to, to the region, I think compared to Russia-Ukraine war uh, effect, a more emergency, uh, issue is the, the the inflation issue. So when the Fed decide to raise its rate and then trigger the uh, the, the U.S. dollar to flow to back to the United States, 
what region worry about whether they will trigger the capital outflow from the region. This is the, 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 the most serious uh, issue the region concerned about to prevent that from happening. We all know what will happen if there's a capital outflow from the region. So uh, above all, this will be a policy priorities to make sure that the region keep is attraction to global uh, investment and capital inflows. Okay, back to you, Don, for uh, for a moment. Uh, you have written uh, about the fatigue factor in China, really fatigue, and in fact, you probably must be fatigued as well. And your and our colleagues out there, could you elaborate a bit on this fatigue factor? And are there possible political implications to this down the road? Hmm. I mean, we we are seeing it manifesting most on social media um, and also in our conversations with uh, with people. You know, people are fed up <clears throat> and um, they're not really thinking twice about complaining now. While uh, in the past, they might um, uh, be a little bit worried about the repercussions of speaking their minds. Um, they see that the rest of the world has opened up and moved on. But, you know, China appears to be kind of stuck in a loop. You know, it's it's reliving cycles of the same thing, lockdowns, mass testing, quarantines, in schools and businesses um, uh, opening and shutting. And this has gone on in various parts of the country every time that there's been an outbreak, you know, for the better part of the last two years. And in the meantime, the government continues to tell them uh, you know, our COVID policy is the best policy for us and it suits our conditions and our needs and we have to stick to it. But people are asking, you know, well, you know, when this is ever going to end? Um, they have dutifully heeded the government's call not to travel. And in fact, um, the government has just last week made it harder for them to leave the country. Uh, they've done what the government told them to do to get vaccinated not once, twice, but, you know, three or four times now. And yet there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And the Chinese government hasn't particularly done a good job of reassuring the citizens by giving them some kind of a timeline or spell out a more specific plan, some kind of a game plan, so that people can have something to look forward to. Um, you know, in Beijing, where I am, you know, we've been living in this um, semi-lockdown state for about a month now, and most things are shut, and many people are working from home. Um, and we look over to Shanghai, and we think, well, thank goodness, we're not in that situation where people have been confined to their homes for seven weeks now. But people here are in Beijing are also on tenterhooks. You know, they're worried that Beijing could go into a proper lockdown if the infection numbers um, suddenly go up. So we've had a few episodes of people rushing out to the supermarkets to stock up on food whenever, you know, they hear a rumor um, that Beijing is heading into a lockdown. Um, I think most people, for most people, um, they are worried about their livelihoods. You know, businesses are suffering and unemployment has has gone up so so much so that um, the government had to step in to provide some temporary allowances to migrant workers who have lost their jobs. And retrenchment is also happening at uh, many of the big tech companies here. Um, and then compounding that problem, we also have a record number of college graduates this year. We have 10 million graduates this year, um, and they're not going to all be able to find jobs. So 
back to your question, will this come at a political cost? Um, I don't think, um, you know, not at the expense of regime change for sure, but there have been talk um, that presidency has, you know, made some policy missteps with COVID, um, with, uh, you know, his alignment with Russia, and that has caused much unhappiness and divided opinions within the leadership. Um, and these policy missteps could possibly weaken his hand uh, when the 20th Party Congress comes around um, at the end of this year, and that might make it harder for him to install his people um, in positions of power. Um, but there is nothing to indicate for now that his his own position is at risk or that he may not get a third term at the Party Congress. Right. Uh, Dr. Chen, I'll let you have the last word, if you could. Uh, from your perch in Jakarta, it's quite interesting. Your what is what is the view of what's happening in China from Southeast Asia? Yeah, um, to to you know, Southeast Asia countries, China is the largest trading partners, and increasingly, there's more and more investment from um, from China. So, to country, I think the keeping the benefit or or economic reward of keeping close relation with China is quite straightforward. And one thing I like to add is that yes, during the COVID, we see that many uh, foreign invest companies they are thinking to move out of Chinese market. But this is I don't think is something that um, COVID pandemic made them to uh, to do this decision. But actually, this something happened already before um, the COVID. Is uh, behind that is the, the the increasing labor costs and solar industry re relocation from higher cost place to lower cost place. So economically, that perfect sense. But you are right that uh, during the COVID pandemic, that kind of accelerate this uh, uh, relocation process. But in general, especially for, uh, to the region, especially after the conclusion of RCEP, I think um, we, we should be able to expect there's another period of kind of a uh, honeymoon period between uh, ASEAN countries and China uh, from the perspective of economic cooperation and closer trade and investment uh, uh, relations bilaterally. That's very interesting. Okay, well, um, Dan Donway, Dr. Rorong Chen, thank you very much for joining in Asian Insider again today. Good to see you. Good to have you. Thanks, Namal. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode the fourth Friday of every month. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.